Morning, church family. There's nothing quite as exciting as a prison break, a prison escape, right? It, we, we love movies and TV shows and songs that it, it describe it, an underdog escaping from impossible odds. You know, you're in prison, you're surrounded by armed guards, you've got nothing and nothing but your wits, and you're going to find a way to, to, to get your freedom. There's, there's just something about a good prison break that really can it, it, stir the mind. Probably one of the most infamous of all-time prison breaks happened on June 11, 1962. Late that night, Frank Morris as well as John and Clarence Anglin, escaped from the in inescapable Alcatraz Island prison. They had spent months digging escape passages, setting up a workshop in an abandoned hallway, stealing supplies. They created paper mache replicas of their heads that they glued their own hair to and then laid in their beds to make it look like that they were still asleep and not in their escape tunnels working. And then they used raincoats and they pressed them into steam pipes to form a life raft. And to inflate the rifle laughed, they modified an accordion and turned it into a bellows so they could use that as an inflation tool. They had this very elaborate escape plan that was taking place. And so late that night, they dodged the guards, they went through their tunnels, they inflated their life raft, made out of raincoats, sailed off into the dark waters of the California Bay, and were never seen again. A few, a few items were found, and the guards wanted everybody to believe, okay, they, they surely perished in the cold waters. But they were never seen, the bodies were never discovered, and the, the question has always remained and kind of captivated the mind. Did those three men actually escape it? Were they the successful escape from Alcatraz prison? Now, this morning, we're going to be looking at a different prison escape. This one has even more impossible odds, a more elaborate escape plan, and most importantly, the fate of the entire world is resting on the, the, the success of this escape plan. That's right. We have finally reached Genesis 41. Turn there if you haven't already. For the last few weeks, we've seen our man Joseph. He's been betrayed by his family, by the house of Potiphar, and then again by the cupbearer last week, who he assisted by interpreting his dream correctly, only to be immediately forgotten. We learned last week that rescue from Egypt will ultimately fail if, if Joseph relies on his own, his own ingenuity. He's not going to think himself or scheme his way out of Egypt. His rescue must come from God. And so he has still been in prison. We left him there for the last. He's been there for two years. And now God is going to be the one to get him out. We've also been following along with the parallels between Joseph's life and the life of Jesus Christ. We saw Joseph is chosen by God, he's promised to the throne, yet is sacrificed and humbled by the very people he was called to. We saw him betrayed by those around him, even as he maintained his innocence. We saw that Joseph suffered between two men, and just like Christ, one was raised up and the other cast down. We ended last week by asking this question, why did God do this? And the answer was because he wanted to show us that our eternal salvation would come by his work, not our strength or ingenuity or determination. Like the th second thief on the cross, our salvation comes from knowing the God of the Bible, recognizing our sins, and crying out to Jesus to remember us. Now Joseph cried out to be remembered, but the cupbearer forgot him. But God has not forgot him. And so it is God who is going to jog the memory of the cupbearer and start the rescue mission in earnest that will wind up saving not only Joseph, but the whole world as well. This morning I want to see God is the one who provides the rescue. This morning's passage is very long. Genesis 41 is a good 57 verses. So we'll be taking it in four sections. The first section will be the longest. So first we're going to look at verses 1 through 36. God's plan, what is going on here in the life of Joseph, is finally going to be revealed. So God's plan revealed. Verses 37 through 45, the raising of Joseph. 46 through 57, seven years to prepare. And then 53 through 57, the seven years of judgment. Follow along as I read our first section, Genesis 41, 1 through 36. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. 
And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt. And all its wise men, Pharaoh told them his dream, but there was none who could interpret it to Pharaoh. Then the cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me in the chief baker in custody and in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about, I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. And Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered, Pharaoh, it is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream, I was standing on the bank of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came out of the Nile and fed in the reed grasses. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very thin and ugly, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one had even known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. And I saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears, and I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. And Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what is he about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears, ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after that, there will rise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by the reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that this thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. The food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine." And so we see God begins by giving Pharaoh two dreams, very, very specific details, very similar to what we saw last week. There are two dreams, both which have deep vividness to the, to the dreamer, and they clearly have a message. There's something specific about these dreams. Um, and so Pharaoh is, is noticing this. He tells everybody about it. The cupbearer hears it, and he goes, two dreams that both have a meaning. Oh, that jogs my memory. That's enough to catch my thought. I, I remember my mistake now. I forgot to mention Joseph to you. I forgot to tell you about this Hebrew two years ago. You know, and so he remembers his fault. They call for Joseph. He's been in the prison now for years, so they have to clean him up and shave him and put him in good clothes and probably give him the first bath that he's had in who knows how long and, and bring him before Pharaoh. But I want you to notice... Uh, Several things here. First off, you see that once again in verse 8, the earthly interpretation fails. Once again, the people, the wise men are unable to understand this dream. It's obviously vivid and it obviously means something, but they can't figure it out. They're like, all right, there's clearly some sevens in here. There's a doubling in here. There's the, the fat and the thin and the ugly. And like, yeah, there's something going on here. But what is it? And no, nobody really wants to stake their reputation on interpreting this dream. And, and once again, two chapters in a row now we see that the one who will be the one to do the interpreting is Joseph. But I really want you to catch the way he speaks to Pharaoh. Think about this. In, in, in this pit, he's had no chance of parole. You know, when we think about prison, we think, okay, you go to prison for a while. If you have good behavior, maybe you can get parole. Maybe you can get a reduced sentence. 
There's no reduced sentence in Egypt. There's no parole. There's no retrial. So this is his one chance to stand before Pharaoh. So what does he say to Pharaoh? Pharaoh, I'll interpret your dream, but on one condition. You've got to let me out of the prison. You've got to give me some money. You've got to pay me back for all of the time I spent in jail falsely accused. You know, get back at Potiphar, and then I'll interpret your dream. But no, instead, he once again, as he has week after week now for us, puts his faith in God. He says, God is the one who interprets dreams. And I'm merely going to tell you what God is saying to you through this dream. He puts himself in a humble position. He doesn't barter. He doesn't try to manipulate and scheme. He's humble and he's bold about the fact that he's trusting God for the dream interpretation. And, and Pharaoh, I think, is going to notice this. And we'll catch this in a little bit more in just a moment. So Pharaoh see, hears these dreams of the, and realizes in verse 21, these two dreams, one meaning. There's going to be seven years to prepare, seven years of plenty, and then seven years of famine. So we see now the, these two sets are coming. And the dream is doubled to prove this is going to be set in stone. This is not going to change. Regardless of what you do, Pharaoh, seven years from now, a famine is going to devastate your land. You must prepare for this. And that's the advice. Prepare while you can. You have seven years to prepare. If you prepare, you'll be okay. Because you'll notice that after the thin cows ate the fat cows, the thin cows stayed thin. It was barely enough to satisfy them. This is going to eat up everything that you lay aside. It's not just going to eat up that year's supply. It's going to eat up the years of plenty as well. And so the years of plenty must be saved if they're to survive this famine. It's really interesting if you consider this in the place in history. The Nile Basin at this time in history is the greatest producer of food in the entire known world. This is the center of the food. So Egypt would grow excess food and then trade with all the other nations for tools and resources and technologies and minerals. So Egypt was constantly bringing things in and then constantly sending food out. So the food for them is not just, hey, we need to eat to live, but it's also their trade good. It's also their bargaining chip to have power over other nations. So for them to be destitute, to be stricken with a seven-year famine, this could not just destroy Egypt, but disrupt the entire global economy and basically send the entire world into a massive famine that will lead to massive amounts of death. So it is, it is critically important that this famine be prepared for and taken seriously. And Pharaoh, Pharaoh recognizes this is the right interpretation, and, and he needs to follow the advice. So now look with me, if you would, at verses 37 through 45, and we'll see Pharaoh's response. 37 through 45. The proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all there is to know, discerning and in wise as you are, you shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took a signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he made him ride in the second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without you, without your consent, no one shall lift up a hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh called Joseph's name, Zaphnatha Penia, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar's priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Once again, Pharaoh looks at this man, and like I said, here's a man who's not bargaining, who's not begging to be, don't throw me back in that prison. Instead saying humbly, I know the will of the Lord, I can interpret the dream by God's aid, and I will tell you what God is going to tell you. A man who doesn't have political ambitions and schemes like all of these other wise men around him. And Pharaoh latches onto this man and says, this is the kind of guy I want running my company, um, running my country. This is the kind of guy I want to help us prepare. And so here we, kind of, we begin to come to our first application. What, what is your reputation like? How, how do you talk to people in the world? Your classmates, your, your coworkers, your boss, the people you interact with on a daily life. Do people recognize in you there's something different about this man? There's something trustworthy about you? And, and I, think, I think we can learn a lesson here from Joseph. I'm reminded of an event in my own life that happened many, many years ago. Um, when I was uh, 
still in college, living at home with my parents. Um, my dad had me doing uh, yard work every week, and I would go out and I would mow the yard, and then my dad and I would sometimes we'd go get breakfast or we'd go hang out in the afternoons together. And our, our next-door neighbor began to take notice of this. And one day we had a hole in our roof, and so my brother, myself, and I are all, and my brother, myself, and my dad are all up on the roof fixing this hole together. And our neighbor comes out, and he's like, hey, guys, can I join you? I want to know what, what's going on here. Because here's two college-age guys getting along with not only each other, but with their dad. And I've never seen that before. There's something different about you. There's something loving about the way that you all interact, the way that you talk to each other when you're going to and from your vehicles, the way that you spend time together, the way that the, the young men in your family, you know, my, myself and my brother, the way that you just mow the yard and you don't complain and you, you help each other out. Your family is different, and I want to know why. And so that began a series of conversations as we shared the gospel. He was the very first person I ever shared the gospel with. And in its fullness. And my dad got to sit down with him for hours and, and share with him what does it mean to be a Christian and how does being a Christian change the way you live. But the only way we were able to share the gospel with this neighbor was because we lived our lives differently. We, we took our, the truth seriously and the call to love one another and, and to live and for me to honor my father and for us to be respectful. And it gave us this opportunity to speak for Christ and, and to pour into his life. And so just like Joseph here, there was, there's a, a marked difference in the way we live. And so I, I ask myself repeatedly sometimes, am I living in a way that my coworkers can mark me as different? That people around me can say, hey, there's something about Jared's life that's different than other people's lives. That, that the Christian friend is different from the non-Christian friend. That the way you're living has some appeal to it. There's an, an integrity to it. Are, are you the kind of person that your boss wants to put in charge? Does your employer, does your... Uh, teacher at school, whoever it is, do people over you trust you when they're not in the room? If you're a Christian, that should be a yes and a truth. It should be something to take, take as a matter of, of seriousness. Be the kind of person that can be trusted when, when nobody's watching. I, I think we can learn from, from Joseph in this. And, and Pharaoh recognizes in this and promotes him. And you'll notice everything that he's given, the signet ring. Everybody in that room, I can guarantee you, wanted that signet ring, because there's only one signet ring. The signet ring is used to seal laws into truth. So this means he now has a governmental authority power, power over all the other wise men, power over everybody else and everything else that's going on. He's put into rich robes. Uh, the fact that he's riding in that second chariot, chariots were very expensive. And to ride in the chariot that's next to Pharaoh's meant you're riding in a really nice chariot. This is the equivalent of the nicest car you can think of. I'm not a car guy, so I'll let the car guys in the room you know, whatever the nicest car is, it's the car up, one up from that. It, it's, it's ridiculously expensive. So he's going from, you know, lifetime prison sentence without parole to driving in just the nicest luxury vehicle of that time period. And then we see him, you know, wearing just decked out in expensive jewelry. And then he's given, he's given a wife. He marries Asenath. I'm not very good at these names. Asenath the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. And this is a little bit interesting to me, because if you remember, there's a little bit of, a, of, a, of an interesting here with the names, because Joseph, if you remember, means the Lord will add, because his, his mother was like, God, give me more children. So she's born like, the Lord will add you to my family. She was excited. But Potiphar, we've seen now two men, and they're both named Potiphar, Potiphar. This is a very common Egyptian name. It's thought to mean gift of Ra, so both of these men who should be in authority, both of their names mean, you know, you know we're Ra's guys. And here comes Joseph, and his name means I'm, I'm God's person. And he is now usurping the authority. He's been promoted to a higher place than both Potiphar, the captain of the guard, and Potiphar, the priest of On. On is the city of Heliopolis, which is the religious city of Egypt. So this is where the worship of Ra and the other Egyptian pantheon would take place. So for him to marry this, this basically religious princess and to step in and as a position of power over this priest of Ra is for, for God to almost kind of be hinting that, hey, my man is more important than all of your fake pantheon, Egypt. My guy is, my guy is stepping up. There's some foreshadowing here, I think, to what's going to happen in a few generations in Exodus 10, 21. The ninth plague will be three days of darkness. During the ten plagues, if you remember, God is going to act in such a way as to 
specifically humiliate each and every Egyptian pantheon god. And on the ninth day, Ra, their sun god, their most important god, God blots out the sun for three days and says, oh, you worship the sun? You think the sun is trustworthy? I will blot it out for three days, and you will lose faith that the sun is a god, because it's not a god. It's a ball of energy up in the sky that gives us light. It's not a divinity. And, and so God, God humiliates the Egyptians for worshiping the sun. And here we kind of begin to see the, the, the hint of this. is These men who are named after Ra and who are worshiping Ra, their authority is now usurped by this foreign Hebrew who worships the true God. And so we begin to see God, God working as he puts Joseph into a place of power, as he honors him. Now look with me at our third section here, verses 46 through 52. Seven years to prepare. Look at how Joseph prepares. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Remember, he was 17 when he was kidnapped. It has been a long time. He's 30 years old now as he enters the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And as Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of those seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt. And he put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for he could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore him to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all the hardships and all of my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And here we see Joseph's habits of faithfulness, of diligence, everything he learned to do in Potiphar's house and in that prison, of day after day and working hard, not giving up and being faithful with the little he's given, now he has a lot that he's faithful for. And so for a full seven years, he works hard. He doesn't take his day off. He is out there going up and down the entire country, making sure every single city, he's going to every single city, making sure that they have adequate grain supply. This involves building massive silos, building containers to hold all the grain, counting it until it's uncountable, and making sure that every city has their grain storage ready for them. And so the entire nation is protected. That must have been exhausting. Can you imagine having to travel the entire country of Egypt up and down for seven years and coordinating barn buildings and silo buildings and infrastructure changes and getting everything ready for this famine? And so he, he, he goes to work, and he works hard to the Lord, just as he did in Potiphar's house in the prison and as he has his whole life, and God honors him. But I want us to take a few minutes now and think about his two sons. There's a very important lesson here in what he names his two sons. Did you catch it? He has two sons named Manasseh and Ephraim. Now, both of them are going to be the two half-tribes of Joseph in the tribes of Israel. They will be two of the tribes. And they're going to be important. Both of them are going to have a role to play. We'll talk about that even some more in the coming weeks. But I want you to catch their names because they teach us something. We'll start with Manasseh here, the oldest. Manasseh's name means God has made me forget all my hardships and all my father's house. This is important here because what he's saying here is that God has helped him to forget the hardships. What does it mean that he forgot the hardships? Is he, is he pretending that his life hasn't happened? That the first 30 years were just like, I am blocking those memories out. No, I don't think he's saying that. We're going to see from Ephraim's name that that's not the case. But instead, what he's saying here is that those first 30 years of my life, 30 years of my life, do not define me anymore as a person. I am not the Hebrew who was betrayed by his brothers. I am not the man who was falsely accused in Potiphar's house. I am not the man who was pulled out of prison. These are not the things that define who I am. The, and he, you'll notice he says both of them. My hardship, referring to what he endured in Egypt, as well as my father's house. He has forgiven his brothers. He said, what happened in my father's house no longer defines me, no longer affects me. God has healed me. He is at a point in his life where God has begun to heal him, and he recognizes. I understand now why God allowed what happened to happen, and I am not going to allow this to be with me for the rest of my life as a hardship. 
And then we see the, the completion of this in Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The land of my affliction. He still recognizes, yeah, I suffered in Egypt for a long time, and I got there because of my brothers. He's, Ephraim lets us know he's not like pretending it didn't happen, but he's recognizing that through his suffering became his blessings. Through his suffering, he gained his sons. He gained his life. And he gained this position in Israel, or in Egypt, where he's going to be the savior of Israel. He's going to be able to save and protect countless thousands of people from starvation. And he says, this is why God put me in each of these places. And this, this is true in my own life. And if, if you're a little bit older, you're, you're probably true in your own life, own life as well, where you recognize things that happened that at the, mo- at the time, in the moment they happened, you're like, why, God, did you do this? What was the point of this? Why did I have to switch majors in college? Why did I get dumped by my first girlfriend? Why did you know, that job fire me? All of these kind of questions that pile up in your head of what was the point of these things? Maybe months or years later, something happens, you go, oh, that's why that happened. Because that would have been a terrible thing if, it, if my plan had worked. Or, you know, that's why it happened. God was moving me and strategically placing me. I only meet my wife, Caitlin, if certain events in my life happen that were painful. I only make it to Texas if I take certain jobs and get fired from certain jobs and leave certain jobs at the right time. And so I see God's guiding hand through both the good things that happened in my life as well as the things in my life that happened that were painful and that, were, that brought brokenness. And so we begin to have an approach, and Joseph is showing us this, of recognizing that God is guiding us through both the good and the bad things in our lives. And he's recognizing this. And I think from, from Manasseh we can learn this, this lesson of, of not defining ourselves by just the brokenness in our story. Because it's, it's really easy for us to say, you know, I, I struggled with alcohol, so I'm an alcoholic, and that's just who I am now. Is I'm always going to be a recovering alcoholic. Or, you know, I struggled with kleptomania as a, as a youth, and I was a thief, and I've, I've, just, I've got a thief's heart, and I'm always a thief. And just, just latching on to our past, or latching on to the sins, or what happened to us in our past. Or, you know, I'm a survivor of, of this form of abuse, or I'm, a, I'm, just, I'm from this personality, or I'm from this ethnicity, or these things in my past that just define me so much that I refuse to be anything but what I was 10 years, 20 years, 30 years ago. And yet here, here Joseph is saying, yes, I endured great trauma, betrayed by my own family, suffering in prison, but I am not that person. Now I am God's servant who is second in command over all of Egypt. And he recognizes that. He recognizes God has brought him through. And yes, he needed to be those things in the past. But he's not going to be those things forever. He is no longer living as a prisoner because he's not a prisoner. And he recognizes God has fully healed me and he's carried me forward. And I would encourage you, when you think about God healing brokenness, do you just think about God healing brokenness a little bit? You know, I'm I'm currently healing. I'm currently recovering. Or, Or do you see God in this life, like Joseph, healing you to the point where you say, that's not me anymore. I don't even identify myself as what I was in my past. The sins, the addictions, the brokenness, the hurts from my past no longer define me so much that I have, I have, I have learned from them, but I have moved on and, and found healthier and better ways to describe myself, to identify myself, and to, to be God's person. And I think that's, that's what Joseph is reflecting in the way he names his sons. And it's, it's worth noting here, him forgiving his brothers already. He says, I recognize what happened in my father's house. He's going to tell his brothers in a few chapters eventually, you know, God, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. That famous line is coming up. And I think even at this point, Joseph recognizes that. But there's going to be some reconciliation that needs to happen first. So come back next week. Um, there will be a lot more discussions on, on and a lot more process that's going to be involved in healing a family. That's, that's going to take some work that God is going to do for him. So God has begun to heal him of, of his past, but the relationship will still need to be restored. So we'll see that next week. Now, let's look ahead to our final section, verses 53 through 37, or through 57. Because the years of plenty do end. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. 
So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Joseph did it. He made it. He worked seven hard years. He saved everything up. And now he is able to feed all of the nation of Egypt. God has rewarded his hard work. God has, has spared Egypt from certain doom. And by consequence, all of the nations around them. And it, it's worth noting here that this story is not just the story of Joseph being faithful and then Joseph getting a reward. But through Joseph's faithfulness, all of the world is being rewarded. And, and even after everything he endures, even after his promotion, there are still more trials for him to work through. You know, yes, there's a season. We talked a little bit about seasons last week. There's a season of seven years of peace. But after that seven years of peace, there's another trial for him to endure. There's another seven years now where he's going to have to work hard to, to, to dole out this grain and make sure people aren't taking too much, making sure that it's rationed, making sure everybody survives. There's still hard work ahead, and it's going to be a difficult season for him. Notice here the repeating sevens. We've got two sets of seven right here, and that, that doubling that we saw in the dream. Remember the reason for the doubling is because this, that means it's a fixed event. Now, the number seven in the Bible generally is used to represent completeness. So in creation, there's seven days of creation, and it's to say the completeness of creation is in the seven days. And here we see seven days of plenty, seven days of the complete blessing, and then seven days of famine, the complete judgment of God on Israel, on, on Egypt. Because Egypt is a very sinful nation. They are worshiping, like I said, Ra and other pagan gods. And so we see these, this, this completeness. But, but is there anything in the New Testament that this is pointing ahead to? We've seen so many passages so far that we're pointing ahead to something in the New Testament. So let's take a second here and think about the New Testament. This one might not be as obvious as some of the previous weeks. Where in the New Testament do we see two sets of seven right next to each other? And the answer is in Revelation. Uh, I, won't, I won't have you turn there, but in, in, the, in Revelation, starting in, starting in verse six, or chapter 6 and continuing for several chapters, we see first seven seals and then seven trumpets. Two sets of seven. And I think the reasoning is the same. We're told the reason in Genesis 41. When you have two sets of seven, it's to remind you that this is a fixed judgment. Because the seals and the trumpets represent God bringing all of human history to an end. Bringing the world to an end. It's the, the closing act. The, the world is coming to an end. The judgment day is nigh. And so Revelation points us to the fact that human history does have a definitive end point, And after that will be our judgment. Every, every human soul will be brought before God's throne. The book of life will be opened. All of our records will be presented. Every hidden thing will be revealed. Every thought, every hidden act will be revealed before God and our judgment will be upon us. And just as the famine for Joseph was a fixed event and there was no avoiding that seven years of famine, so the, the, our judgment day, the day that will come upon us at the end of time, is a fixed event. There's nothing going to move the day of judgment. That cannot change. But, like Joseph, who had seven years to prepare, so we are also given a season to repair. We don't know exactly how long it will be, but we are given now where we are. Judgment day hasn't started yet. We have time to prepare and to get our hearts ready for a coming judgment. And I think that's the parallel here that we see. This, this picture of God gives us a period, a defined set of time to prepare for the judgment that's coming. And that, that's why I refer to this, this famine as not just a famine or, you know, a seasonality that's coming. But this is pointing us ahead to God's judgment. And so, so we are reminded through this that there, there is a day of judgment that is coming. Now, it's, it's worth noting, who does, who does Pharaoh send everybody to when the, when the, plague, when the, the, the famine does start? He says, go to Joseph. What he says to do, you do. Pharaoh says, I've, I'm not the one planning this. You guys need to talk to Joseph about this. So all, imagine an entire nation coming to you and saying, what do we do now? Can you imagine that? But they come to Joseph. And Joseph says, I have been preparing you for this. Here are the grain silos. With grain you cannot count. Here is the plan. Here is the strategy. I, I've got everything you need. If you trust me, you will live. But if you run away, if you try to fight it, you will die. 
He is their only hope of salvation. Who is that pointing you towards? That, that, that one is obvious. And here, here we see a picture of Jesus. In Jesus, there is life. In Joseph, there is life. Joseph has silos full of immeasurable grain. And Jesus has silos full of immeasurable grace. And so, for the Egyptians, they run, to, they run to Joseph and say, share your grain with us. Let us buy what we have laid up. Let us have, have what we need to live. And as we look at our own sin and look at our own brokenness, we run to Jesus and say, Jesus, I do not have the good works to, to repair my relationship with God. I do not have the brilliance to figure out how to, how to talk God into loving me. But if I trust you, you have grace abundant. You have grace beyond count. And like that thief on the cross we talked about last week, all we say is, remember me, Jesus. Open up your rewards to me. Allow me to humble myself before you and to have the, the grace that only comes from you. And so Joseph here is a clear picture of, of what Jesus will do for us. And note, note the order of blessing as well. This blessing is for Joseph, of, of, of course, directly. He, he's promoted all the way up from prisoner to second in command. But then the blessing comes to the Egyptians first. It's, it's fascinating to me that God doesn't use the Hebrews. God doesn't use the family of Abraham to save the world. He doesn't have those brothers spend seven years stockpiling grain so that they can feed all the nations. But he uses Egypt. And so let's, let's take a second and think about this. Why, why is God blessing the world through Egypt instead of... Through, through the Hebrews, through the family of Abraham. Well, in a, in a real way, he is. I mean, the only way they are able, Egypt's able to bless is because they have, they have the family of Abraham taking the helm, taking control. But I think there's something significant to the fact that we see a Jew working with a Gentile nation to bring, to bring salvation. God's plan, even from the very beginning, has always included all of the nations. Yes, God is going to bless the nations, specifically through the Jewish population, through Jesus, through David, through uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now Joseph. But it will always include the nations. God doesn't just write off all the other countries and, and not care about them until stuff goes wrong in the New Testament. No, God's plan has always included the nations. And, you know, as Gentiles ourselves, this is a, this is a great relief. It's wonderful to see that though the Gentiles, you know, the, the Romans and the Jews worked together to crucify Jesus, the blessing of Jesus comes to both the Jews and the Gentiles. And the first century church was made of Jews and Gentiles. And God builds his church with, with all nations and all peoples. And so we see here God using and blessing and involved in the life of more than just the nation of Abraham's family immediately. He's including the Egyptians in the blessing. And through them, who's being blessed? The, 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 the Philistines, the Amalekites, the Amorites, all these other nations around who are buying, coming to buy grain. All of the nations are blessed because of God's blessing that came through Joseph, came through the Hebrew. But then the blessing goes out to all the Gentile nations as well. And this is, this is a wonderful reminder that God's overarching plan isn't just to save one people group, but to save a people group out of all the nations. Now, as, as we wrap up this morning, I want to make two major points of application as we look at these two sets of seven years, this seven years of preparation and, and seven years of judgment. Two points of application. The first being for the believer, those who are trusting in Christ, and the second for those who are, are not sure, who have not made a profession of faith. So for the believer, my question for you is this. Are you preparing yourself in the seasons of plenty? When God gives you a respite, when God gives you the promotion, when God gives you the vacation, the day off, the, the time to think, the time to breathe, when there's money in the bank account and you're not stretched out all the time, when God gives you those good seasons that come in life, how are you using them? Are you like Joseph where you're still diligent? Or are, is, is the second everything goes right, the second that you just check off and turn off and you know, back off? And, and I'm not just encouraging you here to financially prepare. This is not financial peace. I'm not saying, yeah, you need to have three months of savings in the bank. That's a good thing. But it's more than that. Are you mentally, emotionally, and theologically laying up for yourself storehouses and seasons of plenty for the trials? We're promised trials. So when God gives us seasons of plenty, we have an obligation to, to lay up for ourselves 
what we will need. And so, so what does that practically look like? It looks like this. It means that we immensely prepare ourselves in good seasons, beginning to work through defining who we are, that we're more than just what's happened in our past, that our, our, our definition as a person is found in Christ and Christ alone. It means thinking through things critically and emotionally processing things. If there's things in your past that you were not able to properly mourn, maybe it means you take a day off and you say, I am going to mourn the friends that I lost, the people who died, that I was so busy and so chaotic that I never got to deal with that. Maybe there are people in your past that you need to go talk to from a year ago, 10 years ago, and say, hey, we, we were estranged and I never restored the relationship, and now I'm in a season where I want to restore this relationship, and I want to go back and, and do the hard work. You know, it's, it's easy for me to sit on the couch because it's my day off, but I'm going to use this day to do the hard things, to prepare, to build myself up. And I'd say even most importantly is theology. Don't discover your theology of suffering while you're suffering. Don't wrestle with your own mortality as you mourn at someone else's grave. When, when God gives you a season of peace, begin to wrestle. What does it mean that I'm mortal? What does it mean that someday I'm going to die? What does it mean that I'm called to suffer and, and find joy in my suffering? What does it mean that God has called me his son, his daughter, his child? What does it mean to be in relationship with God? These are questions that are much easier to answer when, you're, when your mind is clear, when the day off is upon you, when there's money in the bank, and when you have time to sit and think. You know, there, there may be times where you're called to, to work through hard issues while your life is chaotic. And, you know, during those times, reach out to others and it can be done. But if God grants you a season of peace, a season of plenty, a season of preparation, I'd encourage you, put that to good use. And finally on this, I will say this. Ask yourself this question critically. Do, does seasons of plenty cause your prayer life, your Bible reading, your, your involvement in God's things to decline or to increase? If you only pray to God when things are going wrong, and the second every God gives you what you want, you leave, then I think it's fair to say that God is probably going to keep you on your knees because it's more important that you be in relationship with God than to have a good life on this earth. And if it takes giving you trial after trial and hardship after hardship to keep you on your knees, to keep you desperate in your prayers, to keep you close to your church, then God's going to give you the trials. If you take advantage of him, like, like Potiphar took advantage of Joseph, if you take advantage of God's blessings and ignore God in those seasons, how can you expect God to give you more of those seasons? If you use your seasons as an opportunity to sin, to self-indulge, to check out, how can you expect God to give you more of those things? And so what I encourage you, when God blesses you, be quick to praise him, to thank him. Use your seasons of blessing as opportunities to pour more of your life into Jesus. Not trying to earn good works, of course, but tr not trying to earn your salvation, but as a way of thanks, as a way of appreciation, as a way of honoring what God has given you. So when God gives you seven, if God gives you seven years of plenty, spend those seven years building up the grain silos and preparing for what God has for you next. And for the unbeliever, I would give you this counsel, that there is an end to the days of plenty coming. And there, there, is a, there is a set day of judgment, and there's also a set day for your death. We all know, as I said, we're all mortal. There will come a day when your life ends. I don't know when that will be. You probably don't know when that will be. But there, there is a limit to our life. Just because God has given you years of plenty, just because God has allowed you to prosper on this earth, just because you still have your health, maybe you have your wealth, doesn't mean you're guaranteed that for decades and centuries to come. There will come a day of reckoning. And I'd encourage you, where you have opportunity, if you see your life is, is, a, is a place of plenty, now is the time to wrestle with God. Don't wait for old age. Don't wait for the end of your life or what you think might be the end of your life to begin to wrestle with who God is and whether or not you're in a relationship with him. If, if you're in a place where you're not sure if you're a Christian or not, you're not sure if you believe this or not, I'd encourage you, make your soul an urgent matter. There's always going to be more paperwork, more bills to pay, more things to do, more friends to hang out with. Another person you, you've been meaning to get coffee with and you haven't got coffee with, coffee with them, they can wait another week. Your soul can't. Friends, get your soul right with God. That is more important than making sure everything else gets done on time. 
And so I'd encourage you, as you have a sense of urgency, look into the things of God. We saw, we saw Joseph as he wrestled with God a few chapters ago, back in Genesis 32. He wrestled with God and said, God, I won't leave until you bless me. And I'd encourage you, if you are unsure in your salvation, if you don't have assurance of salvation, if you're not sure, wrestle with God until you're sure. And, and begin to, to probe these questions. Get friends, get pastors, get counselors around you and say, help me to understand what does this actually mean? It, it's so, so very important for us to, to understand where we are because this, this is the thing that, that we, we have no assurance that we are guaranteed tomorrow. And so that is where our urgency should be placed. At the beginning of the sermon, I mentioned how Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers devoted themselves and risked everything to escape from Alcatraz. They earned their freedom from that island prison. But if you know the story, you know I left a detail out. You see, there was a fourth man named Alan West. And Alan West was supposed to be on that boat. He was supposed to go with them. He was part of the, president. He was part of the preparation team. He helped make that boat and make the modifications. But he got a little lazy towards the end. His prison grate was stuck. He didn't make sure that the grating in his cell, the air vent that he was supposed to get through, would actually fit him. And it had been, it had been uh, cemented a little bit, and it was stuck. And so while the other men are escaping, he's just now getting around to getting his grate unstuck. And by the time he gets out of his cell, the men have sailed. He literally misses the boat. And so Alan West goes back to his prison cell. He sulks. He goes to sleep. And he's the reason we know exactly how they escaped. But he never escapes. He spends the rest of his life in prison. He misses his chance. He, he was devoted. He was trying. But when it really mattered, he choked. He, he, he made some steps, but it wasn't enough. And we heard this again in Matthew 25, 1 through 13, that was read earlier. Think about it. Ten bridesmaids. The wedding's going to happen when the groom shows up. So they're waiting. They've got their, their lanterns. But half of them brought extra oil and half of them didn't. And so the groom is delayed, and the, the five who didn't bring oil run out of oil, and they have to go to the store. So they're down the street at the store trying to figure things out. The groom shows up. All right, time for the wedding. The five, the five women who prepared, who, who took extra steps and extra measures, they're brought in. They get to stand next to their friend. They hold the flowers. They cry. They enjoy the feast. It's a beautiful wedding. And the five young ladies who did their best. They brought a candle at least. It's not like they didn't try at all. But the ones who just kind of assumed that everything was going to work out and assumed that God was going to love them, the ones who just kind of made assumptions and played games and just kind of went along with the crowd, they're stuck at the grocery store down the street. And by the time they get to the wedding, the doors are shut. And they're told, no, you don't get to come in. The bride's walking down the aisle. The doors are shut. Don't interrupt the wedding ceremony. And so they're locked out of the wedding. Why? Because they didn't prepare enough. They prepared a little bit, but they didn't prepare enough. And so I want, I, want, I want to take this message of the Bible to heart and this warning seriously. Because you can go to church, read the Bible once or twice, hang out with Christian friends, you know, go to the youth group, go to the college group, be involved around Christian people, but never really wrestle with the question of, do I know God? Never wrestle with the question of, is this actually true for me? Am I just learning facts and marking time? This is so poignant to me because this is my own testimony. Because I grew up in the church. I was in church pretty much since I was born. And I heard the gospel week after week after week. And I could, I could pontificate. I could tell you all the big theological words. I could come up with good Sunday school questions. And I could sit there. And, you know, 13-year-old Jared was very smart in his own mind. But it wasn't until I began to realize that, no, wait a second. Christianity is not me being smart and figuring out the big words and being better at the catechism than the so-called Christian kids. No, I don't know God. And not only do I not know God relationally, but I'm his enemy. And my sin has separated me from him. And unless I have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then I am far away from him. And on Judgment Day, it doesn't matter that I can define justification or that I can give you the uh, shorter catechism. What matters is that I am trusting my life to Jesus. And this is, this is why it's so important to me. Because this is the mistake that I nearly made with my own life. I was in church. I was around church. I knew the names and the words and the phrases we're supposed to say. But until I knew God and Jesus savingly, I didn't get it. 
And friends, if that's you, if you know the vocabulary and you've been around church maybe your whole life, maybe only for a few weeks, whatever it's been, and you don't know Jesus, I urge you, find God. Wrestle with the Lord. Make sure your heart is secure. Our salvation is by Christ alone. But our assurance is, and our, our knowing of this is true is by our works, by our pouring in and saying, God, help me to understand this relationship. You're in a relationship because you work to be in the relationship. Relationships don't just happen to you. And so I encourage you, work towards your relationship with God. So close this morning. I hope that you will weigh these questions from the passage. Are you living your life with urgency? Are you just kind of letting life happen to you? Have you found your rescue in Christ so much that the world takes notes? Or is it just going to church and putting on a show enough to soothe your soul when you never allow yourself to be fully prepared to walk with God? There's a fine balance here. We're not called to earn our salvation, but to trust Christ. And yet we are called to work hardest to the Lord, to work at our salvation so that we might have assurance. Please don't confuse salvation with assurance of salvation. A tree needs roots to be alive, but it needs fruits to be identified as a fruit tree. My hope is that this part of Joseph's story will encourage you to be more active in seeking a stronger relationship with God, as well as believing in his ability to rescue and restore his people. If you're struggling today with brokenness in your life, I urge you to press into studying God as he has revealed himself. Let God be both your rescue from sin as well as the one who heals and restores the brokenness of your past. Please join me in prayer. Father, thank you that from you comes our rescue. From you comes our restoration. From you comes our healing. Thank you, Lord, that the hard and possible things come only from you and we are not responsible for them. We pray, Lord, that as you take care of the things that must be done, that you would help us to urgently live our lives on mission before you. Help us to wrestle where we need to wrestle. Help us to forgive where we need to forgive. Help us to be humble and open and honest where we need to be humble and open and honest. Help us, Lord, to live as God's man and God's woman, as God's church before the watching world. Pray, Lord. We thank you for the seasons of plenty. We pray that they would not be wasted in our lives. We pray, Lord, for the seasons of trials, the seasons of judgment, the seasons of hurt that come, up, come into our lives. Help us to count it all joy, Lord, when we fall into various trials. Help us to have a relationship with you where we can see your guiding hand even when things hurt. Help us, Lord, to love you more and more every day. Bless the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.